on a hot night in July, the 18th, 1936, anarchist dock workers boarded the prison ship Uruguay while it sat in the port of Barcelona. The prisons were the singularly most repulsive institution to the anarchist spirit. Anarchist adventurists like Buenaventura Durudian and Francisco Ascaco had repeatedly attacked the Uruguay with bombs and bullets over the years. But this night was not a raid or a jailbreak. The CNT activists were on the Uruguay to liberate not the prisoners, but the guards' weapons. Because in Spanish Morocco, the army had seized control and declared its intention to overthrow the republic. There were rumors that Seville had been taken as well, and that the garrisons of Madrid and Barcelona would rise in the morning. If they were to avoid destruction, the CNT workers of the city needed all the guns they could get their hands on. The news had filtered into Barcelona throughout the 18th of July. Confused radio announcements, newspaper articles, telephone calls from relations elsewhere in the country. Spanish Morocco had fallen first, and now civil guard and armed right-wing civilians on the mainland were joining forces with military units to arrest representatives of the left-wing Popular Front government and union leaders. For the moment, however, the various army barracks of Barcelona were silent, but throbbing with quiet menace. Luis Companias, the president of the Generalitat, the annoyingly named Catalonian Autonomous Regional Government, I know it was what you called yourself in the Middle Ages, but it sounds annoying to say. Just call it the general something. I don't care. The general house. The generalitat. I'm sick of it. President of the generalitat was a good liberal lawyer who had defended anarchists pro bono during the years of pistol rule that followed World War I. But now, faced with the prospect of arming the CNT to distributing weapons to the workers of the city to put down a rebellion, he balked. The only thing scarier to the bourgeois leaders of the Catalan government than the prospect of a military coup was the prospect of an anarchist revolution. So the CNT used their radio station to announce a general strike to begin the next day, and CNT defense committees set out that night to take destiny and weapons into their own hands. Military armories guarded either lightly or by sympathetic enlisted men were raided. The jailers on the Uruguay were relieved of their arsenal. Gun shops were stripped bare. A shipment of dynamite laying in a docked freighter was expropriated and turned into makeshift hand grenades. Welders fused metal sheeting to the side of trucks and taxicabs to create makeshift armored cars. Across the city, paving stones, rolls of newsprint, and sandbags were stacked into makeshift barricades. The sleepless textile workers, printers, barbers, students, and school teachers of Barcelona tensed for sunrise. The fate of the city, the country, the human race would be decided in the morning. Cataclysms like the Spanish Civil War send shockwaves through time, both forward and backward. The declaration of the Second Spanish Republic in 1931 had established civil war as an existential inevitability. An underdeveloped agricultural economy in the middle of a global depression was not going to be turned into a modern capitalist state through points of parliamentary procedure. No European country that lacked significant colonies made the transition to modernity peacefully, and Spain would not be an exception. For five years, the people of Spain, latifundists to braceros, magnates to mechanics, were subtly but forcefully aligned 
towards open civil conflict, like iron filings drawn into battle order by the great magnetic spike of war lodged in their collective future. The riots and church burnings that had accompanied the establishment of the Second Republic in May of 1931 were a dark omen, but the liberals and reformist socialists of the new government set about undaunted to the task of rewriting the Spanish Constitution. Their agenda was bold. The land, the army, and the church would each be transformed, and with them, Spain. The church was their first target, looming large as it did over Spanish life, relatively inexpensive to tackle, and uniting the otherwise quarrelsome liberal Republicans and Marxist socialists in their mutual resentment of the institution. So, Articles 26 and 27 of the New Republican Constitution ended Catholic influence over Spanish education and public spaces. The Jesuits were banned. By the way, not for the first time in the history of Spain. Charles III had also banned their asses in the 18th century. They are always annoying to everyone. That's the Jesuits. The state stipend for a clergy, which had existed for 100 years, was sunset. Now, this was significant in a country with well over 100,000 priests, nuns, and monks running around. Those funds would be shifted to build thousands of secular schools and raise pay for secular school teachers. This is the culture war erupting into modernizing Spain. For the right, these reforms were nothing less than the repetition of Christ's crucifixion. Coming as they did after the state's dulcetory response to the church burnings in May, the church reforms marked the republic as fundamentally antagonistic to traditional Spanish religious life. Anti-Spain in power. In July, two top Spanish prelates, a cardinal and a bishop, who walked into a bar and then had persisted in condemning the government and extolling the fallen monarchy, were exiled to France. And in Navarre, the smallholding peasants whose ancestors had fought and lost multiple wars against liberalism on behalf of the Carlist pretender to the throne and the Catholic Church unearthed their grandfather's red berets, which were the symbols of the movement, and began to stir again into political action. Meanwhile, War Minister Manuel Azana set about the task of cleaning the Ogian stables of the Spanish military. The army was bloated and top-heavy, with one officer for every 11 soldiers and a general for every 1,200, often a make-work program for the non-inheriting sons of the rural landowning class. Military expenditures made up 18% of the Spanish budget, but 60% of that went to officers' salaries, leaving the army itself chronically under-equipped. War Minister Azana went about slashing the officer corps by offering full pensions to all who chose to retire and demanding all who remained in active service to swear an oath of loyalty to the Republic. Over 5,000 officers took the buyout. Azana also reduced the number of army divisions on the peninsula and abolished three military academies, including one in Saragossa under the direction of a Brigadier General Francisco Franco, who might come in later to the story. Military judicial authority was curtailed. And to balance out the civil guard, which was seen as a tool of the rural landowners who were most hostile to the republic, the government established a new paramilitary police force, the Assault Guard. The cuddly named Assault Guard would be concentrated in cities rather than in the countryside and ideally be staffed by officers more loyal to the republic. These reforms succeeded in shrinking the army but didn't make it any more institutionally loyal to the republic. Many liberal officers took the pensions to get out of a stubbornly reactionary institution that resisted meaningful reform. 
The right-wing officers who took pensions retired to complain and scheme against the Republic. Those who remained complained and schemed on the clock. For the officer corps, the army was Spain, and Azana's reforms compromised the army's authority and autonomy. It didn't help that Azana, who is a career journalist and man of letters, spoke of pulverizing the army. And this was after he had excused the government's slow response to the church burnings in May by saying that all the churches in Spain weren't worth a single Republican life. These gaffes didn't prevent Azana from becoming prime minister, though, when the new Republican constitution was ratified in October. And for all the Sturm und Drang that accompanied church and army reform, it was agrarian form that would decide the fate of the republic. Its first fruits were laws that restricted rural evictions and banned landowners from hiring laborers from outside of their municipality. This was to prevent the importation of cheaper migrant labor and increase the negotiating power of the local braceros. Now, the owners howled at this infringement of their sacred rights of property and contract, and they argued that it forced them to hire incompetent locals over skilled outsiders. But the measure's effect on rural poverty was dramatic and instantaneous. Wages for farm laborers doubled between 1931 and 1933, propelling a massive influx of peasants into the Socialist Party and the agricultural section of the UGT Socialist Union. The farm laborers tended to prefer anarchism, but the rapid wage increases and eviction protections were the first taste of meaningful political reform in their lifetimes. Suddenly, politics felt like a place that they could be represented. Soon, there were half a million braceros in the Socialist UGT Union, bringing with them the deep hunger, pain, and resentment of poor rural existence, which had until then had mostly found an outlet in the anarchist CNT trade union. A la huelga, compañero, no vayas a trabajar. Deja quieta la herramienta, que es la hora de luchar. Now, for all their immediate effect, these reforms were still only ameliorative measures. Real agrarian reform would require redistribution, rationalization, and reinvestment. The good old three R's, we love them. It was this question, as well as the question of Catalan autonomy, that dominated the deliberations of the Cortes in the first half of 1932. Because, as I said, Catalan politics at this point are dominated by a left bourgeois party, an alliance of peasants and the middle class in the cities. And they were a hugely important part of the overall Republican coalition. And so making them happy was key to the long-term success of the Republic. So like everything else in Spain, the Catalan bourgeois was divided. They all supported autonomy, but the large textile owners, small compared to the Basque industrialists and financiers, were otherwise as staunchly Catholic and reactionary as the Castilian-speaking right. But as I said, by 1932, Catalan politics was dominated by the Esquerra, which is Catalan for left party. And that's small bourgeois, the small holding dead vine peasants who own their land, but only at the sufferance of a medieval right to harvest near the dead vines of larger estates. And it was their constant conflict with the large landowners that sharpened their politics to the left. And it also got a, a votes from a lot of non-anarchist workers in Barcelona, as well as the anarchist workers who did vote, even though the CNT said, don't do that. They, a lot of them still did. And when they did, they voted for the Esquerra. 
And now the Iskera wanted their demands met, which is Catalan autonomy, their own ability to, to make local laws and spend local revenues. Now, to the right, specifically the officer corps of the army, who had spent years fighting a domestic counterinsurgency in the streets of Barcelona, and, by the way, whose budgets were partially dependent on Catalan tax revenues that were going to be lost with autonomy, for them, any such devolution of power was a grievous insult and another rent in the fabric of eternal Spain. All of this and more were too much for General José San Giorgio, the commander of the Civil Guard. Now, San Giorgio was from Navarre. He was the son of a Carlos general who had fought in the rebellion against the First Republic in the 1870s before he was, of course, absorbed into the victorious military like the rest of the Carlos officer class. Now, San Giorgio made an impressive career carrying out imperial and domestic counter-guerrilla warfare. He fought against rebels in Cuba before the Spanish-American War and gained the nickname the Lion of the Rif for his part in the defeat of the Rif tribesmen of Morocco in 1925. San Giorgio had been the general who told King Alfonso in 1930 that his support in the army was too weak to continue. By 1931, he was exercising his counter-guerrilla methods domestically as chief of the Civil Guard. All while the rising expectations generated by the new government led to increased social conflict in the countryside. That winter saw high unemployment for Braceros in Andalusia and Extremadura, and in December, a demonstration of UGT-aligned farm workers in the village of Castile Blanco erupted in violence that left four civil guardsmen dead. In January, the Civil Guard unleashed a wave of reprisal violence against striking peasants, culminating in a massacre of 15 civilians in Arendo in the north of Spain. Under massive public pressure, Azana removed San Giorgio from command of the Civil Guard and moved him to command of the Carbonari, Spain's border and customs police force. San Giorgio began plotting with aristocratic Carlist civilians to overthrow the Republican government. In August, in Seville, San Giorgio made his pronunciamento, insisting that he sought to end the godless government of Azana, not the Republic. But the times had passed by the line of the Rif, and the heavily politicized, easily mobilized working class of Spain sprung into action. San Giorgio's allies in Madrid were dispersed in a farcical brawl. Apparently, Azana watched it happen from his balcony while smoking a cigarette. Uh, and in Seville itself, a joint CNT-UGT general strike broke the coup's momentum. San Giorgio fled to be apprehended by Republican forces near the Portuguese border. And it was in the outraged aftermath of this botched coup that Azana's government was able to pass a statute for Catalan autonomy and agrarian reform. To punish the aristocracy, who were widely assumed to have been complicit in the coup, even if many of them had no idea what was happening, the punitive expropriation of noble lands was tacked onto the reform bill. However, by 1932, only 6% of the land in Spain was owned by the aristocracy. So formal expropriation was an insufficient basis for redistribution. Another provision of the law limited the amount of land a single owner could hold. All told, the reforms ended up freeing up enough land to settle about 60,000 farming families, which amounted to a spray of drops in the million-man ocean of landless Spanish braceros. Over 10 million hectares of land would have to change hands at gunpoint to accommodate the whole landless rural population. 
In addition to being insufficient, the reform was resisted at all points by the rural landowners. In the countryside, many of the political officials of the new regime were the same power-broking caciques of the days of the monarchy. One rural worker recalled a landowning family whose three sons were each members of a different Republican political party. Much of the land given to Braceros was the least productive available. Compounding matters was the general poverty of the Spanish government. The new constitution included Spain's first income tax, but depression conditions killed demand for Spanish agricultural exports. Capital flight was another concern. A $60 million loan from J.P. Morgan that had been arranged in the last days of the monarchy was canceled as soon as the republic was inaugurated. The richest Spaniards began sending their money out of the country. A promised agrarian bank that was supposed to provide cheap loans for the purchase of seed and modern farming machines was never established. The result was landless peasant families settled on marginal soil without access to the capital necessary to improve it. The countryside, where poverty and unemployment were double what they were in the cities, exploded with pain and rage. Rising expectations created by the first round of reform and frustration at the pace of progress was catalyzed by the increased mobilization capacity created by mass union membership. This generated a new militancy among the Braceros of the South, a new sense of empowerment, and the awkward situation for the Republican coalition government in which the ministers of labor and finance were members of the Socialist Party. These were men who were authorizing the violent breaking up of strikes and demonstrations by the very landless workers they claimed to represent. Now, this contradiction solidified the view among the anarchists that the state could never be an instrument of working-class liberation. The anarchist peasants of the South responded to the advent of the Republic with periodic rebellions, which were called revolutionary gymnastics, both by sympathizers and critics within the anarchist movement. The sympathizers with revolutionary gymnastics were embodied by the activities of the Anarchist Federation of Iberia, which in Spanish letters is the FAI. Uh, Very important. The FAI, folks. It's the ideological uh, and militant vanguard of the anarchist movement. The FAI, which had been founded in the depths of the Rivera dictatorship's repression. It was a collection of affinity groups of often around a dozen activists, cells, if you will, dedicated to the idea that the anarchist revolution would come from the spontaneous action of the Spanish people, not from any political formation. The FAI existed to direct and inspire the actions of the people. The archetypal anarchist of this mold was the previously mentioned Buenaventura Duruti of the Nostromo group, which was the name of his cell a career militant who had directed insurgent attacks against the Primo de Rivera regime and committed revolutionary bank expropriations in Latin America. Now, the critics of these cyclical explosions of popular resentment were known as the Trentistas, which were named after the 30 signatories of a 1931 statement which told the anarchists, look, guys, I know we all love doing illegal stuff, but the only real way we're going to change stuff is if we use political power and union organizing that only through building structures of power can we pursue the seizure of power. Now, this pissed the shit out of the old-school anarchists and these Trentistas, the 30 signatories, and tens of thousands of their followers were formally expelled from the CNT. Get this shit out of here. We don't want any of your fucking political parties. We don't want any of your, even labor unions. We want spontaneous action of the workers to reform organically society and not be tainted by the authoritarian implications of the structures that you're talking about. We don't want to lose our love. We can't lose our love for each other by being subsumed to these 
the dead hand of this discipline. Now, these people who were expelled ended up forming, some of them, a syndicalist party, an attempt to turn anarchism into a political movement, but it never really got anywhere in Catalonia. But these debates were ornamental to the unbreakable dynamic of a deeply poor, deeply resentful peasantry facing an economic depression and exploding political horizons. No matter what the eggheads in the anarchist movement thought about revolutionary gymnastics, they were an inevitable byproduct of the social conditions in the Spanish countryside in the South. They were not going to be able to make them happen or make them stop. For the first time, amongst this incredibly oppressed population, the world actually felt malleable and up for the taking. It felt like the growling of the stomachs that was more intolerable with each passing day could be silenced through action. CNT or FAI, the leaders of the anarchist movement, were forced to react in the aftermath of spontaneous peasants' risings and strikes. Their lack of an ability to coordinate their grassroots with their leadership doomed every one of these explosions to a violent extinguishment because they could not be harnessed together to be wielded against the state. So this leads to the anarchists essentially forming something like a permanent insurgency within the Second Republic, a constant frothing illegal war while the formal mechanisms of politics continued on. This low-level war between CNT farmers and the civil guard in the countryside saw deaths on both sides, culminating in the Casa Viegas incident. Now, In the Andalusian village of Casa Viegas, a standoff between anarchists and civil guard ended with the civil guard massacring 24 CNT militants and their family members. Outrage from the rank and file of the socialist and anarchist movement boiled upwards at the government. Even the right wing cynically accused President Zamora and Prime Minister Azana of having blood on their hands. The scandal and general failure to advance beyond the gains of the first two years of the Republic bled support from the government and fueled internal strife throughout 1933, which was the worst year of the Depression in Spain. Now, in September, a dispute between the Socialist Party and one of the main Republican parties supporting the government brought down Azana's ministry and new elections were called for. The liberals and socialists had claimed victory in 1931 in part due to the fracture of the Spanish right, existing as it did as a collection of regional parties organized around regional economic interests, uh, and all of them hostile to the very idea of representative government. Now, two years of dramatic government reforms and rising labor militancy had the dual effect of driving the liberals and left apart while drawing the regional right together. In March of 1933, representatives of regional right parties, spearheaded by popular action, a Catholic populist group modeled after Action Francais across the Pyrenees. There it goes again. Every single time the French have an innovation, the Spanish copy it. Met to form an electoral coalition. The result was the Spanish Coalition of Autonomous Rights, or CEDA, C-E-D-A, funded by the country's landowners and led by José María Robles, a lawyer and son of a Carlist legal theorist. CEDA brought the often fractious local barons of Spain together around a national platform of belligerent Catholic nationalism, denouncing the first two years of the Republic as a descent into a godless Marxist maelstrom. 
For their part, the Socialist Party embraced radical militancy in its election platform, demanding the nationalization of the land, the dissolution of all religious orders, and the seizure of their property, as well as the dissolution of the army and the civil guard to be replaced by people's militias. The new Spanish constitution rewarded coalitions, and the election in November saw a coherent right coalition in Seda run against a Republican, liberal, and socialist left that were falling away from each other. This was also, by the way, the first Spanish election to allow votes for women. And the female population, which was generally more pious and church-going than the male, disproportionately supported the militantly Catholic Seda. The results of the election were a massive win for Seda, which was the single biggest vote-getter in the country. But the president of the republic was still a good liberal, Niceto Zamora, and he refused to allow a government headed by Gil Robles to be formed. It's the old poppers tolerant intolerance problem. Do you let into government people who would destroy your government? Gil Robles was a loud opponent of the secular reformism that was the sine qua non of representative government to guys like Zamora. Seda was denied at any ministerial posts in the new government, and the prime ministership passed to Alejandro Leroux of the Radical Party. So at the turn of the century, 30 or so years ago, LaRue led a group of young barbarians, he called them, which were working class roustabouts who he put to war against the church and the monarchy. He was the essentially right populism of turn of the century Barcelona. He captured all of the non-anarchist workers in a general anti-clerical thuggery. Uh, That's why he called them young barbarians. But it was was proto-fascist opportunism. And by the 30s, LaRue's party was an ideologically vacant collection of machine hacks because it had always just been a way to gain power. Hey, what do these guys hate? The church? I'll help them hate the church and the king. Uh, and I'll give them power and I'll let them smash some windows. And then they won't, have to, they won't start thinking about overthrowing the government and they'll maybe give me some political power within it. And it was funded by the corrupt primo-era monopolists like the tobacco millionaire Juan March. Conflict between the socialists and radicals had brought down Azana's government, and now LaRue and his followers were happy to front for a right-wing government of monarchical Catholic nationalists in exchange for access to political spoils and patronage. LaRue's government was made all the more galling by the facts that the vagaries of the Constitution meant that 800,000 radical votes had translated to 104 seats in the Cortes, while 1.6 million socialist votes had netted only 61 seats. I love to net 61 seats. This radical fig leaf did little to quiet the unease on the left at the rise of Seda. The situation in the rest of Europe only deepened the anxiety. In March of 1933, Hitler's government in Germany passed the Enabling Acts and began the process of destroying leftist opposition to the Nazi regime. In the same month in Austria, the diminutive Austro-fascist Chancellor Engelbert Dolfus, who advocated a Catholic corporatist government very similar to Seda's program, exploited a parliamentary crisis to abolish Austrian democracy. Now, as 1934 dawned, the Catholic corporatists of Seda were poised to reverse the reforms of the first two years of Republican rule and perhaps abolish the Republic itself. Now, returning into power, the landowners who financially backed Seda acted as the restored French bourbons had, by forgetting nothing and learning nothing. General San Giorgio, whose death sentence had been commuted to a 30-year prison term as an olive branch to the right, was pardoned and allowed to enter exile in the neighboring right-wing dictatorship of Portugal. 
Agrarian reform was halted and the municipal law reversed. Employers began assembling blacklists of known socialist workers to ban from future employment. Rural wages plummeted. This was the start of what would be later known by the left as the two black years of reactionary rule, made even worse by collapsing economic conditions caused by the continuing global depression. Britain and France enacted protectionist policies that destroyed Spain's agricultural export market. Foreign trade fell 70% from 1931 to 1935. The Latin American countries where Spaniards had emigrated for generations closed their borders and repatriated Spanish immigrants. Factory closures in the cities, some of which were politically motivated, sent urban migrants back to their home villages. So at the very moment that subsistence was hardest to come by in the countryside, the pressure valve of emigration reversed. There were more mouths to feed and fewer jobs in the countryside than ever. The Socialist Party newspaper claimed, never, not even in the worst days of the monarchy, did the peasants feel more enslaved and wretched than now. Socialist Party journalists could write about the enslaved wretchedness of the braceros of southern Spain, but it was another thing altogether to experience it in your day-to-day life. The cumulative agony of the landless peasants drove the Socialist Party into chronic internal conflict and hindered coordinated political action. Over the summer of 1934, Largo Caballero, the ascetic former plasterer and leader of the more radical faction of the socialists, moved to build a workers' alliance of proletarian parties and unions, from the communists to the CNT. The liberal republicans would never take extra-parliamentary action against the government, but the Marxists and anarchists could. But while the unions and parties that represented the interests of the urban and rural workers met to negotiate terms of cooperation and reacted to political developments in the Cortes, the actual suffering braceros languishing on two and a half pesetas a day took action on their own terms. It was always difficult to keep hungry laborers and well-fed union officials on the same page, but the deep economic and social crisis of 1934 broke the connection between the rural rank and file and union leaders. The social and political isolation of the Braceros in the villages was total. In the cities, many small bourgeois and professionals had liberal politics and believed themselves to be on the side of the workers in some sense. But in the countryside, social life was deeply bifurcated. Professionals, like big landowners, wore ties and shoes, not straw hats and sandals. They, like the big landowners, lived in houses, not flea-ridden barracks. The only way for the suffering Braceros to breach the social divide was through militant labor action. The only way to get the attention of the other side was through violence. And in the summer of 1934, strikes and demonstrations popped off across southern Spain as particular local conditions sparked particular local responses. General strikes flared in Valencia and Zaragoza. The working class unions and political parties were unable to coordinate responses to these actions. And one by one, they were crushed by the landowners and the civil guard. By the fall of 1934, militancy among the half-million rural UGT members had been momentarily broken. At the precise moment that SEDA provoked a political crisis that would finally push Caballero's workers' alliance into action. Gil Robles saw a violent conflict with the left as inevitable. Sooner or later, he said, we would have to face a revolutionary coup. It would always be preferable to face it from a position of power before the enemy was better prepared. And to this end, Gilrobles engineered a series of provocations. He had taken his honeymoon in Nuremberg, 
to witness Nazi rallies, and he brought that staging and drama to Spain. Supporters would march past him, giving stiff-armed salutes and calling out Jefe. At a rally for the Seda Youth Division, featuring thousands of peasants paid to attend and bust in by political bosses, Gil Robles declared, We are an army of citizens ready to give our lives for God and for Spain. No one can stop us from imposing our ideas on the government of Spain. It was widely understood that the left's red line would be the inclusion of Seda members in the governing cabinet. And on October 4, 1934, Gil Robles used his influence as leader of the largest party in the Cortes to insist on three Seda ministerial positions, one of them a prosecutor who had ordered the confiscation of thousands of copies of the socialist newspaper. So, at the moment when grassroots worker energy in the countryside was most broken and dispirited, the Workers' Alliance launched a tepid general strike in Madrid with the goal of forcing President Zamora to call new elections. At the same time, a separate political crisis flared in Catalonia, where the Generalitat, still controlled by Componius and the left Esquera, had their own agrarian reform law stricken down by the central judicial authority. A radical faction of Catalan nationalists, who were the closest thing the Catalan bourgeois ever came to fascism, forced Compañez' hand, and a Catalan republic was declared. Now, both of these movements in Madrid and Barcelona lacked support from the toiling masses. The rural section of the UGT had exhausted itself over the summer and provided little support for the general strike. The CNT in Barcelona had no more respect for a Catalan state than a Castilian one and stood aloof from the independence push. In Madrid and Barcelona, government forces were able to suppress the insurgencies with relative ease. But there was one place where the local conditions and organizations came together to create a serious, sustained challenge to the central government. Asturias, on the north-central Atlantic coast, was the center of Spanish mining. The miners of Asturias were among the best-paid laborers in the country and the most well-organized, with both UGT and CNT represented in the workforce. Years of struggle against the mine owners on questions of employment and workplace safety had given the socialist and anarchist unions, constantly in conflict with each other in the rest of Spain, ample opportunity to cooperate. The lack of large landowners in Asturias meant that there was no restive class of hyper-exploited migrant perseros in the countryside accelerating conflict. Anarchist and socialist miners in Asturias made the Workers' Alliance a reality, where everywhere else it had been a fantasy. Only there did the entry of SEDA into the government have the effect of galvanizing the entire working class into action, because it wasn't responding to specific conflicts, because there was a general well-being there was no hyper-exploited class here. Everybody has a paycheck or they're unemployed within that class. So they can wait for a political spark to mobilize around and act around instead of being forced to always respond after a conflict has already been initiated. The Workers' Alliance in Asturias were certain of one thing. Spain would not be allowed to go the way of Italy, Germany, and Austria the working class of Spain would not go without a fight. As the UGT and CNT moved towards a rising, they met resistance from an unlikely source, a small but well-organized group of Asturian communists. Through the summer of 1934, the Asturian communists refused to join any plans to rise against the government. But when it became clear that the UGT and CNT miners were dead set on acting if SEDA took power, they went along. This sort of tracks with the way Marx treated the Paris Commune. You don't want them to do it, but once they go for it, you have to go along, or else you have betrayed the will of the workers. 
On the 4th of October, the miners set down their tools and picked up their rifles, many of which had been smuggled into Asturias over the course of the summer by Indelico Preto, the leader of the moderate wing of the Socialist Party. Preto will always zig when you think he's going to zag. Uttering the slogan, HUP, which stood for UHP or Unite Proletarian Brothers, they seized public buildings in the Asturian capital of Oviedo, imprisoned leading rightists, and declared a workers' government. The mines and arms factories were taken over. Money was abolished and replaced with ration coupons. Dynamite used in mining was turned into weapons of war. The previously reluctant communists put yeoman's work into the cause. Soon, the entire region was in the hand of the workers, and the local army and civil guard were powerless to stop them. The Spanish Civil War is often referred to as the dress rehearsal for World War II. If that's the case, then the October 34 Asturian Uprising is the dress rehearsal for the dress rehearsal. A dynamic was established there that would be repeated two years later. Spanish colonial mercenaries brought to the mainland to break the power of the working class. Now, knowing that the underpaid, underequipped, low-morale Peninsular Army stood little chance against the highly motivated and well-armed Asturian miners, the central government authorized the deployment for the first time of colonial Moroccan forces in Spain. While the Peninsular Army was a collection of time-serving bureaucrats relaxing on top of a groaning mass of insolent peasant conscripts, the army in colonial Morocco was a different beast altogether. In 1920, the Spanish had created their own foreign legion on the French model to better dominate their Moroccan possessions. Once again, they were out constantly copying off the frog's paper. But while the French Foreign Legion offered French citizenship to tramps and criminals from around the world in exchange for service, the Spanish Foreign Legion was mostly made up of Spanish citizens who were looking for a steady paycheck or an alternative to prison. Their slogan was Viva la Muerte, Long Live Death. And for 16 years, they had been the tip of the spear of the Spanish colonial project in Morocco. The other military units in Spanish Morocco were made up of mercenary rift natives, who, having been defeated by the combined efforts of Spain and France, said, if you can't beat them, join them, and signed up to fight for their colonial masters. These troops were known as regulares, in contrast to the Moroccan irregulars, who continued to resist European colonial authority. Faced with the resolute defiance of the Asturian miners, the central government deployed foreign legionnaires and Moroccan regular mercenaries under Generals Francisco Franco, late of the Zaragoza Military Academy, and Manuel Godet to Astarias, to crush the rebellion. Over the next two weeks, Franco and Godet's legionnaires and regulares, augmented by bombs dropped by the nascent Spanish Air Force, slowly ground down the Asturian rebellion. For 14 days, the African forces slugged it out with the CNT UGT miners. Eventually, the miners surrendered on the condition that the Moroccans not be the first soldiers into the town. This conflict, workers' militias against air and ground power with the colonial occupying army, would be repeated two years later. Deaths on both sides came to around 2,000, and the incidents of summary execution, rape, and torture defined the government conquest. Right-wing press reports decried the executions of priests and right-wingers during the occupation and demanded severe punishment for the rebellion's leaders. 
While the liberals and national left parties had stood by during the destruction of radical Asturias, they rallied to the cause of amnesty and exoneration for the imprisoned leadership of the rebellion. Typical. The liberal and socialist leadership were like, look, we do not want you to rebel against the government. But once it's over, they will say that they should be freed and exonerated because that is a demand that uh, the system can hold. It's always easier for liberals to embrace revolution after it's been safely neutralized. The Asturias Rising became the psychic fulcrum of politics for the remainder of the Second Republic. No one on either side of Spanish politics believed afterward that democratic governments could persist in the long term. Either the left would seize power and expropriate the landowners, or the right would drive the liberals out of the halls of power and break the working class once and for all. In the immediate aftermath, between 20,000 to 30,000 leftists were arrested around the country, including Manuel Azana, Largo Caballero, and Luis Campañas. Preto, that wily little boy, had fled to France before the Asturias uprising. Largo took his time in prison to finally read, for the first time in his life, the works of Lenin and Marx. The socialist Casas de Pueblos were closed, and the government debated whether to ban the Socialist Party and UGT entirely. But even with this crackdown, the government failed to do what Hitler or Dolphus had done and used the crisis to abolish democracy. While Gil Robles and the Seda flirted with fascist iconography and ritual, their political project was fundamentally conservative. They were happy to use the powers of government to suppress their enemies without risking a fatal institutional rupture. Spain did have a fascist party, the Falange, which had been formed out of a merger of two smaller fascist groups in 1933 and was led by the dapper son of the former dictator, José Antonio Primo de Rivera. Primo held the Falange's only seat in the Cortes, and the membership in 1935 sat in the low thousands. The Falange held some appeal to bourgeois students and resentful service workers in Madrid, but it had no mass base. Because Spain had been neutral in World War I, it lacked the huge numbers of brutally traumatized combat veterans who filled the ranks of fascist movements elsewhere in Europe. Even the Spanish variant of fascism was less radical than elsewhere. For one thing, it was much more oriented towards the Catholic Church. Otherwise, Falange policy was the same half-witted dog's breakfast of reactionary anti-capitalism and social hysteria typical of Carlism, only with a blue shirt instead of a red beret. But Gil Robles spent 1935 using the institutions of the Republic to advance a broadly reactionary agenda that the left saw in the zero-sum context of the continued depression as an existential threat. Just as the liberal left government had finally brought the regional right-wing movements into national coalition, the actions of the radical-slash-Seda government had the same effect for the liberals and left who had drifted apart while in power. In March 1935, Manuel Azana, having been released from prison without charges, headlined a rally in Madrid. Before 300,000 people, he made an eloquent argument for liberal left political unity. Azana was aided in his quest by a dramatic change in Communist Party policy. Spain's Communist Party had been formed in the 1920s by dissident leftists who viewed the Soviet Union as the headquarters of global Marxist revolution. The early communists were the most motivated and the youngest members of the socialist movements, the ones who were most emotionally offended by capitalism, the ones who were most insistent on having a cause to follow, who most emanated the emotional energy that would once have gone into religious orders. It was those people who saw the Bolshevik Revolution as the millennium and sought to bring it about in Spain. 
It attracted young, highly motivated activists who fully embraced the discipline and purpose that came with submission to a higher authority. For them, the socialists and anarchists who quailed at the Soviet Union's harsh but necessary methods of rule had no real interest in defeating their class enemies. The rural Pueblo had been surpassed by the rush of history and only by moving through the contradictions of modernization, not by avoiding them, and guided by the only workers' party anywhere in the world to achieve state power, the Soviet Union, could victory be achieved. The Communist Party of Spain, like the Falange, was electorally marginal but boasted an outsized organizational capacity and had new marching orders from the Comintern in Moscow. Until 1933, the Comintern the Communist International that coordinated communist actions from Moscow, had insisted that no communist party cooperate in any way with liberal or non-communist socialist parties or unions. According to the official third-period ideology of the time, capitalism was in its death throes, and social fascist left parties only existed to keep it alive unnaturally. After a fatal split between the German Social Democrats and the German Communists that allowed Hitler to come to power in Germany, Soviet policy changed dramatically. To prevent fascism from achieving power elsewhere, Communists were now told to drop their hostility to non-Communist parties and to form broad popular front coalitions wherever possible against a mutually conceived fascist threat. So in 1935, Spanish communists extended feelers to the liberal and Marxist parties about creating just such an alliance. In May, Eurobles claimed the war ministry and promoted reliably right-wing officers such as General Franco who was made chief of staff, while purging known Republican sympathizers from the army. It was only a matter of time before Seda claimed the prime ministership. This was unacceptable to President Zamora, and LaRue's radical party was undone by a very fitting gambling scandal. Uh, it's very complicated and dumb, but uh, LaRue is apparently bribed by a Dutch con artist, a Lyle Landley-style guy, to legalize a specific type of roulette wheel for legal gambling uh, in Spain. And uh, in so doing, he brought down the Republic, the Radical Party, and made it so that the SEDA would have to lead the government for it to continue. Uh, so Zamora was caught between the procedures of the Constitution and his own liberal interests. Gilrobles insisted on the right to form a new government. But a Prime Minister Gilrobles might end democracy, as Mussolini, Dolphus, and Hitler had. Rather than allow that to happen, Zamora used his presidential prerogative to dissolve the Cortes on January 4, 1936, and call new elections to be held on February 16th. The next month saw a frenzied, hysteric round of campaigning, with a popular front of the liberal Republicans and Marxists arrayed against a national front of right-wing parties. Both sides used radio broadcasts, mass rallies, and billboards to paint a terrifying picture of what victory by their opponents would bring. A right-wing paper wrote, The fortune of Spain, 300,000 million pesetas, will be nationalized and taken over or destroyed by Soviet communism. Those who haven't lost their lives will be out of work, in the street with only the clothes on their back. Workers, employees, civil servants, if you vote for the communist, socialist, leftist, revolutionary bloc, you will be slaves, working only for bad food and poor clothing. Folks, poor clothing. And, a, and eating only at bad food restaurants? 
The bad food government. No, thank you. A popular front placard rejoined, the SEDA and its accomplices are asking you for your votes in order to continue their work of terror, injustice, and theft of the past two years. The popular front asks for your help and your votes to free 30,000 men from jail, to make sure 70,000 return to their workplaces, and to demand retribution of the torturers and thieves. Much of the race ended up being a litigation on the October 34 Asturias revolt. The popular front promised amnesty for the imprisoned and vowed to end workplace discrimination against leftists. As usual, the anarchists rejected the choice and condemned the state in toto. Solidaridad Obrera, the official CNT newspaper, wrote, The problem of Spain is not one of political change, but of transforming the economy. In the elections, the proletariat is aligned with the bourgeois parties, forgetting its essential mission of preparing and organizing itself to transform society. Nevertheless, many anarchists ended up voting for the Popular Front in the hopes that they would at least free their revolutionary brothers and sisters from prison. And crucially, both sides implied heavily that they would not accept the election of the other peacefully. For all the blood and thunder of the campaign, the election itself was relatively peaceful and free of controversy, though of course there was some. The results reflected the reality of a deeply divided country. 4.6 million votes cast for the Popular Front, 4.5 million votes for the National Front, with 500,000 for the rapidly disappearing center which included the Basque nationalist parties. The vagaries of apportionment resulted in a huge popular front majority in the Cortes. For the left, it felt like a vindication. For the right, it felt like the end of the world. The short and turbulent life of the popular front government was packed with frenzied incident, all of which occurred in an atmosphere of economic freefall. Spain's wealthiest citizens immediately punished the country for the crime of voting for the left, with factory closures and a capital strike that saw the value of the peseta plummet in world markets. An increasingly radical Largo Caballero refused to allow the Socialist Party to claim any ministries in the new government. From his position outside of it, Largo spoke repeatedly about the futility of legal politics and the inevitability of social revolution, to the deep frustration of the nerd Preto. Both supporters and detractors saw Largo as the Spanish Lenin, waiting in the wings to overthrow the shaky popular front. But this rhetorical posture was aimed at keeping the radical braceros of the rural UGT from defecting to the anarchists, and Largo showed little of the brutal initiative of the Bolsheviks in 1917. In this respect, he mirrored his enemy Gil Robles, whose ambivalence to the idea of a right-wing seizure of power saw him eclipsed in the Cortes by the monarchist firebrand Kelvo Sotelo, who spent his brief time in the Cortes trolling the fuck out of the left every day, saying... Wouldn't it be funny if we did a, a, a coup? Ha <laughs> but no, seriously. What, seriously, what, what if we cooed, though? No, no, seriously. Well, I wouldn't do that, of course not. But seriously, what if we did? What if we cooed? No, seriously. I'm kidding. But maybe? What do you think? I don't know. Could we coo? We'll see. Poo. Ah! The systematic violence of Spanish social life exploded into public clashes between gunslinging young phalangists and socialists in Madrid. This violence wasn't stopped by the outlawing of the Falange in March or the imprisonment of its leader, Jose Antonio Primo de Rivera, on gun charges. In Estremadura, tens of thousands of landless peasants took agrarian reform into their own hands, occupying latifundist land and attempting to farm it without access to capital for tools or seeds. Those imprisoned after Asturias were released and blacklisted employees were ordered to be rehired. In Barcelona, the Generalitat was restored and Compañas was released from prison. 
In May, Prieto orchestrated the cynical impeachment of President Zamora for his decision to dissolve the previous government, and he was replaced by the only politician acceptable to all popular front parties, the August Republican statesman Manuel Azana. Uh, the way they impeached Zamora was so cold-blooded. He had stopped Gilrobles from being prime minister by dissolving the government. And then because Preto wanted somebody he could trust more and was more connected to the uh, left wing, they impeached him for dissolving the parliament. Just cold-blooded. But you know, politics ain't beanbag, folks. Bye-bye, Zamora. The liberal Galician lawyer Cesar Quiroga became prime minister. By the way, I got to put this in there just because it's bugging me. He's not technically prime minister. Okay, the guy, the position is called the president of the council of ministers. It's very annoying that it's not prime minister, but that's why I just say prime minister because it's faster. But anyway, I can't stop thinking about it. Sorry for that. In June, UGT and CNT construction workers went on strike in Madrid. Later that month, the socialist and communist youth movements merged under socialist leadership, but with communist direction. The energy of the youth powered much of the political instability of the time. It must be emphasized. So Spain at this point is a sclerotic society riven with internal tensions that is being drowned in testosterone. You had that baby boom of the World War I era that is now coming into young manhood. And it is young men in the socialist movement, um, in the anarchist movement, the, in the young senoritos, the, the students of the middle class who end up fighting it out in the streets, shooting one another as a way to express a otherwise inexpressible political will to power. On July 2nd in Madrid, two phalanges were killed in a cafe drive-by, leading to the reprisal murder of two workers leaving a Casa del Pueblo. On July 12th, Juan Castillo an assault guard lieutenant and socialist party member who had provided military training to a socialist militia was assassinated by phalangists. The next day, some of his assault guard comrades sought revenge. After searching for several potential targets, including Gil Robles, they eventually drove to the home of Calvo Sotelo and knocked on the door in the dead of night. They roused Calvo from bed and took him to their car where he was promptly shot. The next day, Castillo and Sotelo were both buried the day culminating in a shootout between phalangists and assault guards that left four dead. Among the middle class, the constant refrain was that this couldn't go on any longer, that something had to be done. It was, of course, rich coming from people who were largely responsible for exacerbating the conditions through capital strike. The bourgeois at this time are closing factories, leaving, pushing their money out of the country, accelerating conflict, and then they say, the resulting political violence must not go on. Something has to happen. For braceros and workers struggling to survive and frustrated by the pace of reform, the sentiment was similar. This could not be allowed to continue. Uh, President Azana appeared to all as the Spanish Kerensky. But with Largo incapable of fulfilling his role as Spanish Lenin, the future appeared to be a continued agonized stalemate. Brittle Republican institutions could not contain the roiling class conflict but no political faction had the organizational capacity to press their advantage. Since the early 19th century, this sort of deliberative exhaustion was always resolved by the one institution of Spanish life capable of forceful independent action, 
Army. The victory of the Popular Front had caught the right by surprise. Franco himself had wept and begged Gil Robles to declare martial law, but the parliamentary leader did not want to make the first move in abolishing democracy. Whether they're from the left or the right, bourgeois politicians are all allergic to responsibility. Carlist aristocrats began smuggling weapons and creating training camps for their peasant requetes, but they lacked the numbers to initiate a successful coup. A requete is the name for a Carlist soldier, the yeoman farmer. It's like a Minuteman. It's the, it's the, it's it's the Spanish Minuteman, ready to go from his hoe to his uh, to take the rifle off of his mantle place and be ready in five minutes. That is the requete. But they lack the numbers to initiate a successful coup. They only really had the popular base really up there uh, in Navarre. The new popular front government was well aware that the upper ranks of the military were fundamentally hostile to them, and one of their first acts was to disperse the more reactionary generals away from positions of authority in the capital. Before they all went their separate ways, a number of these generals met on March 5th in Madrid to discuss a plan of action. At the meeting were generals Franco and Godet, the conquerors of Asturias, as well as other future leaders of the military rising, names like Fanjul, Kindalan, and Mola. Of them all, Franco was the most hesitant to sign off on a rebellion. One thing these generals all had in common was that they had risen up the ranks fighting in Morocco, not moldering on the peninsula. It's not accurate to really say that the army rose against the Republic in 1936. The Peninsular Officer Corps were mostly contented bureaucrats with no desire to rock the boat either way, and the common soldiers were largely sullen peasant and working-class conscripts. The rising was made by those who had fought and killed for Spain in the last remnant of its once globe-spanning empire, where nationalist bluster was consecrated in blood and turned real. The soldiers they would depend on to spearhead the rising were the well-blooded Spanish and Moroccan mercenaries occupying the Rif. On the peninsula, the moving force of rebellion were the junior officers, those precariously balanced between hostile subordinates and impassive superiors. For them, a military government promised something that had been hard to come by in an army where officers guarded their positions. Promotion. So you have a situation where you have people who have one way or another been brutalized into weapons of violence like the officers and men in the Moroccan army and then those in the peninsular army who were molded into weapons of ambition by their middle class position between the rank and file and their superiors who sat there like fat ticks on those sinecures and never ever retired. These junior officers were organized in a clandestine group, the Spanish Military Union, UME. In 1936, there were 3,400 active-duty army officers in the UME and another 1,800 reserved and retired auxiliaries. They are the ones who did the work of building a coup infrastructure within Spain. The Popular Front moved to scatter the reactionary generals backfired dramatically. Franco was sent to the Canary Islands, which is just a short hop from Spanish Morocco. Godad was sent to the Balearic Islands, a short hop from Barcelona. 
Emiliano Mola, an owlish bespectacled administrative whiz, was sent to Pamplona, the capital of Navarre, heartland of Carlism. Once there, Mola immediately began. It's almost like they did it on purpose. It, I, don't, I don't think they did, but it might as well have been. Every one of them went a place that, where they would be needed to supervise the creation of an infrastructure for a coup. Once there, Mola, Mola immediately began discussions with the leading Carlist aristocrats about a military civilian alternative government. He understood that the era of the simple pronunciamento was over. Civilian support would be crucial to standing up a new state. The Carlists set up a headquarters across the border in France to facilitate liaisons with members of the UME. After a botched amateurish coup was easily foiled in April, General Mola took control of all military planning under the codename The Director. Couriers, often high society ladies and dashing young junior officers, traveled across the country to bring key army personnel into the conspiracy. It was agreed that the exiled General San Giorgio would be the figurehead of the new government, and Mola had to conduct excruciating negotiations with the Carlists over the look and feel of the new state. After the Civil War, there would be claims that the Sotelo assassination had been the last straw which forced the army to act. But the only reason the rising hadn't already happened at that point was because of an argument between Mola and the Carlists about the flag that they would be flying during the rebellion. Now, Mola, as a modern pragmatic officer, understood that the monarchy had lost legitimacy among the people of Spain and wanted to rise on behalf of the Republic, which was a vital and legitimate political institution, and to argue that the communists were and anarchists were destroying it. And as such, he wanted to fight under the Republican bicolor. Uh, but the Carlists demanded that the army rise under the old monarchist tricolor because the Ar- Carlist leaders were a bunch of goofball aristocrats, a bunch of LARPing military uh, popinjays, well, as the military rising was led by hard-headed realists and professionals. Folks, we love, ha- we love hierarchy and all, but we also know it's the 20th century. The king is embarrassing. It's a cringe idea. This argument grew so tedious and protracted that Mola, who was a kind of a, a excitable sort, considered suicide, but eventually a compromise was reached, basically because the eagerness of the Carlist rank and file to get on with it overrode the political scruples of the leadership. The Minutemen in the countryside are polishing their fucking machetes. They're ready to go. They don't give a fuck what a flag looks like. And it's them that kind of push the Carlists into making an agreement that ends up fucking them over. From his prison cell, Jose Antonio, the leader of the Flange, committed his forces to the rising as well. Even Franco eventually got off the fence and signed on. The date would be July 18th. The army would take Spanish Morocco, and the next day, UME officers would lead troops out of their barracks to take the cities of the peninsula. Mola would consolidate power in the north, Godet would take Catalonia, and Franco would advance to the south from Morocco, all to converge triumphantly on Madrid. It's correct to call the coup plotting a conspiracy, but it was not really in any way secret. There were a small number of left-wing junior officers in the army. They had their own organization, the UMRA, and they were aware at all points what their colleagues were doing. Nobody was hiding it. They were being told at mess hall, like, get ready, Red, we're going to kill you. But every attempt to alert the liberals in charge of the popular front government was ignored. Even civilians, like the communist representative Dolores Iburi, known as 
La Pasionara for her fiery speeches, warned the government about what was coming. They knew. Now, the government, President Azana and Prime Minister Quiroga, were adamant that the military posed no threat. They likely thought any coup that would happen would be another pratfall, an opportunity to root out disloyal officers and bolster the government's legitimacy. They also knew that acting first to dismantle the plot would mean ordering the military to essentially turn on itself, a proposition that no one in the Popular Front government trusted. For Azana, it came down to this. If I order this coup to be stopped, I might very well start it because the army will refuse and turn on me. But again, the allergy to responsibility of the bourgeois politician means that they had to live in cloud cuckoo land and wait passively for something to happen. It was either do that or do something that Prieto had demanded from the prime minister on the night of Sotelo's assassination. Arm the workers. Head off the rising by giving guns to the working class. Quiroga refused. Without confidence in itself and fearful of the working class, the government instead chose denial. In July, some frustrated UMRA left-wing officers hatched a plot to kidnap or kill the leading conspirators to do something. But Quiroga found out about it and thwarted it. Regardless of the mounting violence in the streets, the escalating apocalyptic rhetoric, and the general breakdown of social life, the liberal leaders of the republic refused to believe a breach was in the offing. Meanwhile, officers across Spain and Morocco awaited telegrams bearing the code word Covadonga to single that the time had come. Covadonga is a small town in Asturias and the site of the first Christian victory over Muslim forces in Spain in 722 AD, a victory that had begun the centuries-long process of reconquest. This was how the generals and Carlists and phalangists and sympathetic bourgeois who would end up composing the nationalist side of the civil war saw their task, the reconquest of Spain from the forces of godless Judeo-Bolshevism and the reestablishment of eternal Spanish values. They would make a modern Spain on the backs of the workers, unhindered by carping liberals. The rising began in betrayal. On the morning of July 17th in Mieja, the capital of Spanish Morocco, one of the conspirators informed loyal authorities of the plot, which was scheduled to begin the next day. When officers attempted to arrest the plotters, a standoff ensued, but saw the loyal officers surrender to the superior Alan of the plotters. The rebellious soldiers moved quickly to seize control of the, of the city, arrest the commanding general and mayor, and declare martial law. There were a small number of left-wing workers in the city who rallied at the Casa de Pueblo. They were promptly massacred. Spain may have avoided the mass trauma of World War I, but the Africanistas who had made the rebellion had seen their share of carnage in the Rift War and were not squeamish about dishing it out to their enemies, Republican officials and militant workers. In Los Palmas, in the Canary Islands, Franco pushed the timetable ahead a day and quickly took control there, sending a telegram message to forces across Spain. Glory to the heroic army of Africa, Spain above everything. Accept the enthusiastic greeting of those garrisons which join you and all the other comrades in the peninsula in this historic moment. 
Blind faith in victory. Long live Spain with honor. Franco's Hamlet Act hadn't prevented him from arranging a private air charter, courtesy of the tobacco millionaire Juan March and an English Catholic publisher, which had secretly made its way from England to the Canaries over the previous week. Now, Franco took the de Havilland Dragon Rapide from Las Palmas to Spanish Morocco, where resistance to the rising was wiped out within a day. Executions soon followed, including that of Franco's first cousin, authorized by Franco's own hand. By the evening of the 17th, the government in Madrid was fully aware of what was happening across the Strait of Gibraltar, but PM Quiroga rejected a request from the unions to distribute arms to the workers, insisting that at every turn that trust in the military powers of the state. The next day at noon, General Gonzalo Cuepodiano, commander of the Carbonieri Border Police, took control of the local garrison in Seville, again just by walking in and acting like he was in charge. That is how uh, Cuepodiano took Seville. The lo- because he was a carbonary, he was not in the military hierarchy. He just marched, he just had, he had lunch, and then he walked into the barracks and said, march out under my orders, and everyone just did. Because he wanted to do something as opposed to just sit around all day and brush flies away from his face. What happened next established the pattern of the rising across the country. The decisiveness of government and the union leadership determined the fate of the city. In Seville, existing tension between the UGT and the CNT led to paralysis. In places like Madrid and Seville, there had actually been more violence between the socialists and the anarchists than between the anarchists and the phalange at any point. A joint general strike was announced over the union-operated radio stations, but the workers remained hunkered down in their neighborhoods. While Cuepodiano consolidated his control over the center of the city and began broadcasting the first of what would become nightly drunken, taunting radio broadcasts. This was the first modern conflict to be transmitted over the radio waves and the first modern conflict to be podcasted because Guapodiano is a podcaster at heart. He spends the war giving hour-long harangues about how the Republic was going to be destroyed, how they were, all the Reds were going to get killed, how all their girlfriends were going to fall in love with the, the Nationalists. Uh, just trash talk nonstop and Inc- incredibly vulgar stuff, really a dirtbag rightist for certain. And on his first broadcast, Cuepo vowed he would reestablish order that had been subverted by foreign powers, and he condemned the Marxist conglomerate that had deformed the character of Spain. That night, the CNT in Barcelona sprang into action in the face of the Generalitat's paralysis, grabbing weapons wherever they could and bracing for the morning. Barcelona was deemed critical to the success of the Rising, and with 12,000 troops in Catalonia and General Godet set to fly in from the Balearics, all of which quickly fell to the rebels, success seemed assured. At 5 a.m. on the morning of the 19th, troops from the Pedralbes barracks were sent, told by their officers that they were being deployed to put down another one of those pesky cyclical anarchist uprisings. They were marched out to claim key buildings in the city center. This was a story that would have been very believable to any regular Joe in the Spanish army. The anarchists are at it again. They're out there hooting and hollering in the streets. We got to go tell them to stop. But General Godet didn't arrive to coordinate the rising until later in the day, and the initial push into the city was haphazard, with units scattered, uncoordinated, and immediately beset by militants. Soon, the rebel soldiers were either barricaded in their barracks or under siege in those crucial buildings, like the major hotels and the telephone exchange that had been occupied. By the time Gadet's plane arrived from Mallorca, the Rising's momentum had been blunted. 
Meanwhile, CNT workers drove trucks loaded with loudspeakers around the city to relay news and raise morale. At this crucial moment, the Civil Guard commander marched his forces into the middle of the city, and to the surprise and elation of the crowd, they declared their allegiance to the Republic. Now, this is likely more due to the desire to back what looked like a winning horse than because of any ideological commitment, but the actions of the Guard were still crucial to rolling up the rebellion in Barcelona. In Monjus Castle, towering over the city, soldiers shot their nationalist officers and handed guns over to the CNT. Assault guards and workers convinced an army artillery crew to turn their guns on rebel strongholds. Across the city, troops, who were largely peasant conscripts after all, began to switch sides. Captured artillery forced the surrender of General Godet, who agreed to announce his capitulation in a nationwide radio broadcast, which was a huge morale blow wherever it was heard by the right. He would be shot for treason in August. Across the city, churches burned, and priests, who were thought to be aiding the rebels, were killed. By the night of the 19th, the central city had been cleared of rebels. Most of the buildings had been taken by some combination of civil and assault guard, but the telephone exchange had been captured by CNT militants. The only remaining holdout were the troops and officers of the Atarazanas barracks near the port of Barcelona. On the morning of the 20th, the CNT insisted on claiming the prize for themselves and putting their stamp on the successful suppression of the uprising. Waves of anarchists charged at the barracks, suffering heavy casualties. Francisco Escaso, one of the most influential CNT radicals and a close collaborator of Derudi, was one of the first to fall. Even after air power and artillery, which could have pounded the barracks into submission, were brought in, the anarchists continued to swarm the barracks until it finally surrendered. Over 500 anarchists died in the assault. And that is really the mark of anarchist military power. They are highly motivated, but they don't take orders and they are hard to coordinate. Hurting pissed off armed cats. A huge energy XP at a huge cost of efficiency. But the catch-22 is that what motivated them was their sense of freedom, that they were doing it of their own will and that they were being uncoerced. But coercion is the key to the military efficiency that allows you to effectively deploy forces. It is a Gordian knot that they never figure out how to unwrap. These deaths didn't dampen the atmosphere of giddy festivity that seized Barcelona that evening. Armored cars paraded through the cities, tapping out a honk meant to represent the letters C-N-T-F-A-I. Every street corner thronged with celebrants drunk on victory and vino. For the anarchists of the city, some 60% of the working class population, their triumph was the ultimate triumph of the idea. The people of the city had come together to beat back the forces of fascism, even converting the civil guard and large numbers of simple soldiers to their cause through their passion and direct human communication. The millennium had arrived. A new world was possible, and it was being built with every breath through the spontaneous actions of the workers of the city. The CNT was armed. The General Etat was at their mercy. The future was unwritten. But the fate of the revolution in Barcelona would depend on how the rising fared across the rest of Spain. Spain. 